0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so looking forward to this hour. We've got guy guide talk starting in just 30 or 40 seconds. But I want to start with just giving God all the praise and awe and worship. He is sovereign. He's the most high. He's the king. He's ruler over all. He is awesome in power and he fights our battles for us. He is the absolute author and finisher of our faith. He loves us. He's faithful to us. He is a God of blessing. He keeps his promises. He's our hope. He is our deliverer, our sustainer, our help, and our friend. He's a source of gladness, and he is trustworthy. So we're going to take your questions. So whatever they are, let us know if you've always wanted to ask your pastor a question but felt too nervous to do it. You can ask these guys because they're uh, not your pastor. (laughs) <laughs> from what I can tell. And they're more than happy to take your question. The power panel today is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepsen with Peter Kapsner, um joining us in about 10 minutes. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi, Bill. Hi, Justin. Hey, Bill. We missed you last week, Justin, just so you know.
1: Hey, I always miss you guys, too. I'm so sorry I couldn't be with you.
0: It's okay. You're 007. <laughs> Were you in Istanbul? <laughs> well, thank you.
1: Uh, Morocco. That's, that's confidential
0: information. <laughs> <laughs> you can't talk about that kind of stuff, Tom. Come on, you no, should no, know. No, on I just air. enjoy I the baby crying in the background. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. All right, well, you're gonna, yeah, hear that. Here's so, a question sorry, to get. Here's a question to get things started. What's the difference between proselytize and evangelize? <clears throat> Five seconds. Then we go on to the next I th- question. I
2: think a, you, anybody can proselytize. A Muslim can proselytize. The only people who evangelize would be Christians, because okay. you're sharing what's called the evangel,
0: which means the good news. Mm-hmm. So pro- the ol- yeah, is proselytizing kind of a, a, a one way street? I'm I'm telling you without listening to you, without communicating with you, I'm just speaking at you.
3: Mm. Most proselytizing that I've seen around the world is just like that. It's forced because you've got a captive audience. Good witnessing. Is giving people opportunities to make choices about the good news of Jesus, and presenting the gospel to them, and they still then decide whether they want to respond or not. Mm-hmm. There's no thread.
1: Yeah, I think I think another dynamic that comes to mind too is the difference between um, you know evangelizing, proselytizing. I think proselytizing, is from what I know and have um, heard and experienced, that it it's very rigid and that it has to look one way. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. happens with this exact regimen, and it, it's done uniformly across the board, whereas evangelizing, it's it's really an expression of, you know, God's wired us with different giftings and different ways to do that, and the ways that we disciple and make disciples um, has a beautiful sense of diversity that's all founded upon the gospel, but yet the expression of that and how we go about doing that, God is, since we're a diverse body of Christ, that can happen in diverse ways in different cultures and different times and seasons.
3: That's a good word, now. I wish we could hear that more, Justin. I really do, for a very simple reason. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Christianity got into almost what I call proselytizing, in that we came up with certain methodologies for sharing the gospel. I'm not saying those were wrong, but it was like you waited for that opportunity then to hit them with whatever the message was. What you're talking about is interacting with people, listening to people, and then as the Holy Spirit opens the door, you step in with the good news— And I think that is exactly what Jesus did, exactly what I want to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When Jesus said to go out throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to all mankind, he did give us orders. Yes, he did.
2: His last words on earth, go Mm -hmm. ye
0: therefore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, here's another question. Um, This one goes to Justin's child. (laughs) Um, No, have we medicalized a lot. Have we medicalized a lot of things? Um, I'm I'm saying this in reference to um, nowadays we may not say the person's a thief, but rather he's a kleptomaniac, or this person is not sexually immoral, he's a sex addict. Yes, we um, have. And how do we understand me- mental illness and sin? Well, there,
3: there's the diversity, and there's where the problem comes in, because your your sciences have moved away from, at one time they were very Christianized. They were very biblical. We've moved so significantly away from that to where I think science has done a very good job at basically cutting off the spiritual because spiritual doesn't exist anymore. Mm. All, that, all that matters is the physiological, the brain waves, that kind of thing. So they create a whole new language and that everything we see today now uh, is a mental illness or is, is something along that line. And things like wickedness and sin mm-hmm. don't exist in that culture, don't exist in that way of thinking and that's why we see so many people with different attitudes toward this now. Everybody needs to be uh, hospitalized. Everybody needs to be, you know, treated this way. They're, yeah, they need yeah. treatment. They need medication. The truth of it is, yes, there are some people that are definitely mentally ill. They've got a physiological problem or something in their brain, a tumor or something Absolutely. else. Absolutely. But there are many people who become what I would call, we would call mentally ill because they held bitterness in their heart and unforgiveness and resentment. And that takes out an effect on the body after a while and I know I had an aunt who was a bitter lady. She was bitter from very young. She got older, faster than anybody else. She looked angry all the time. Nobody wanted to be around her, and she was a result of her own, uh, what I call, sickness of sin and unforgiveness. That's an interesting point. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Justin? Yeah, that's a good word, Tom. You know, I think we have the tendency to try to compartmentalize the human experience, and we always try to make it it's it's either this or it's either that, um, or rather than existing and kind of in the nuanced perspective that it's it's often a both and. And I think we can often assign at different levels of responsibility and value um, to different aspects of us, but recognize that we are we are whole beings, and so that's why, you know, when it comes to mental illness, you know, I, I think some of the Counseling and experience that I've done, you know, when it comes to depression or anxiety, um, you know, it's 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 sometimes it's oh, it's just a spiritual thing. You have to trust God more. Well, do I need to trust God more? Yeah, probably. But there also might be a chemical imbalance in my brain sure. that medication and counseling will help. And so I, I think when we try to over spiritualize or over physicalize or medicalize something. I think we're um, we're trying to pull apart what God has meant and designed to be together and to function together because we're holistic beings. And so every aspect of ourselves, mentally, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, impacts the rest um, and has eternal ramifications. And so um, I often think things go into both ends. And so I think we can't subject, you know, our, our experience or our accountability for the decisions we make to any one aspect of our being but to really hold, hold all of them in tension and to consider all of them as we try to discern um, what's going on. Tom
3: you know, Brock? Uh, uh, Paul, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead,
2: Tom. I, I don't think anything's wrong with going to a Christian counselor or a Christian psychologist. But if you go to a secular psychologist, God can use them as well. Oh, sure. But just make sure. I mean, when, when I was in college, I went to a secular psychologist, got horrible advice that really hurt. And it hurt my life, and so just just have the good sense if you're a Christian and you go to a secular psychologist that you, you know when to say nope. I'm not taking that advice.
3: Yeah, well Jesus gave us four windows into human beings. He said we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body. So we have there are four aspects to us. Science usually only works on two of those. If you get to be a rigid uh, Christian in the sense, you only want to work on the spiritual. And the bottom line is, and I agree with Justin, you want to look at the whole picture as much as you can and clarify what's working, what isn't working, and then move in the direction of where the source of this problem really is. It may be chemical. A lot of times it's also spiritual, but we don't get to that because we want to treat it chemically right away. And,
2: you know, sadly, I think more in the Middle Ages, uh, faith and science went hand in hand. Today they're antagonistic. I have a friend who was telling me about her atheist brother, and she tried to witness to him— and she he she said he looked at me with anger and said, "I'll stick with science as if you you're either going to be a Christian or you're going to be scientific, but you're not going to be both but there are people like you know newton and and you oh, know sure. used to, used to be Christian people were the scientists, but it's become uh a, a, you know an issue now to split the two
3: well, it is publicly it is when you're offer grant money because mm-hmm. that's the way they need to operate." Would you be surprised how many Nicodemus phone calls I've gotten late at night from, quote, scientists, medical doctors or whatever, saying, I've got patients. I don't know what mm-hmm. to do with them. I, mm-hmm. I, I think there's something spiritual going on. Can you help me?
2: You know, I sat next to a doctor on a plane once who told me he, was, he became a Christian in med school. And I said, what converted you? And he said, when he studied how intricately designed the human body was, I had to conclude there's a design-er but then I went to the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Walked through that place about how the you know the the whole universe is held together just perfectly, and and there's a asked the astronomer uh, booth. So I went up to him and I tried to be genteel, but I said, I'm just curious. Do you think m- most astronomers are? more likely or less likely to be atheists than the general population? He said, oh, much more likely. <laughs> and I thought, how can you look at the way this universe is designed and conclude nobody made this thing? You know, right. it just boggles my mind.
0: Yeah. Let me know what your questions are. Send them over. You can send me a text at 877 2484 or you can email me, Bill, at MyFaithRadio.com. Power panelist Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson. And when we return, I'm pretty sure Peter Kapsner will be joining us as well. Again, 877-933-2484. in place. We've got Pastor Tom Parish, Tom Brock, Justin Jepsen, and now just recently joined the team Peter Kapsner. Peter, welcome.
4: Hey, guys. Great hey, to be Peter.
0: here. We're so glad you joined us. Thank you. Uh, you, you know, usually you're on time, and you, today you came late. Almost like 007. Yeah, he, What's with I you? I did.
4: I did. I've been taking a page. I've been doing a little research on JustinJepson.com. And, uh, and so I'm learning kind of some of the strategies the guy uses. If I could just grow some hair, I'm going to be next in line for this 007 deal.
0: I like it. Well, we feel good. There's a doctor on board now. So. I like it. All right. Let's jump into a question that came in yesterday that we didn't get a chance to uh, deal with. And it was the comments regarding church discipline and disobedience. How are we doing in that department? Tom well,
3: most, most of us aren't doing very well at all. I mean, today there's virtually no church discipline of any kind. People just do what they want to do. There was a time when there was church discipline, but it had, it had a tendency to be heavy-handed in the way it was done. Uh, I coached football for many years, as well as soccer, and I had to do two things with the kids all the time. One, I had to encourage them, and I had to discipline them so they could win. And I think that too often as leaders, we don't do a very good job at telling people why we're doing something or why we're telling them they can't do this or why they've got to go back and read this in their Bible. We just simply say, stop doing it. And we have to be much more empathetic and much more listening and work with the people and help them to grow. And when you do that, you develop leaders.
2: Yeah, when's the last time you've heard of any church disciplining anyone for anything? Almost never. And that is why the, the American church is, is kind of a mess. I, I do know of a church that disciplined a guy, and it did work. He repented, and he came back to the Lord. Wow! So there, there are good fruit from that, but it's hard to do, which I, is why I think people don't do it. But we're commanded to do it in Matthew 18, and First Corinthians, what five is it, where Paul says, you know, kick that guy out of your church?
4: Well, I think it's tricky, you guys. Right when uh, people are sort of. Coming into church through the through the pathway or the doorway of church shopping anyway, and so mm-hmm. I guess in that sense of things, when when we organize our church life together by the number of people in the pews that are giving towards the budget of the church, then you you add a complicating factor for pastors that I, I'm sure pastors wrestle with. And having been in pastoral ministry, you, you see sort of this hidden but very real undercurrent that uh, that does create some tension in the church when you formed it to some degree like a business where the people have to give towards the church in order for the church to run effectively in programs. And there's part of that that makes some sense, I suppose, in some way to organize some things because there's been some beautiful programs and tons of uh, wonderful ministry and lives changed through that kind of approach to doing uh, an organized life together. But when you have that approach and people are voluntarily joining communities based on preference or shopping or, or whatever it is that, they come into a community for. And somebody says, well, hey, I don't really like what it is that you're, it's not even, I really don't like it. It's unbiblical what you're doing in your life. The the choices are unbiblical. Well, if we don't have really great biblical teaching to begin with, number one, and number two, somebody can just vote with their feet and leave. And in their leaving, we lose some of the budgetary giving. The thing gets pretty messy pretty quickly for some of those reasons I'd suggest. Yeah I, think that's a good <laughs> yeah, I got an amen. You're, you were
3: raising that little guy or gal right.
4: <laughs> Wait, what did you hear? <laughs> <laughs> all I heard is amen, Justin. Whatever else was said, it, it that, was, that was my interpretation. It was oh, that's close. That's was what am, I thought. It was amen. Amen. No, I I think along
1: those lines, too, just another difficult dynamic of this. And I think while something like trying to apply church discipline breaks down in the West is – I mean, again, I think we're marked by—and um, I think V.A. Carson you know, kind of dubbed this term that we're marked by a rugged individualism. And I think if we view our, our connection and our participation um, to the within the context of the church as merely just what I'm going to do, what I'm going to get out of it, what I'm going to give, what I'll get back in return, rather than how I'm intimately, interdependently connected to other Christians as brothers and sisters, as members of the same body, and how— um, I, I need to give account for my life, and I don't just answer to myself. And my life actually impacts others around me. And I think we need to be able to see outside of ourselves uh, to recognize that I actually I need the discipline of others. I need others to be able to be in close enough relationship with where they see and can observe my life, where they're actually able to speak truth and love, and to be able to offer correction. Good word. And, and actually, um, you know, allow them to be the vessel through which God can bring His discipline.
2: And I don't doubt, uh, Peter, that there are pastors who don't do discipline because of the money. <laughs> but I will tell you, when I had to do it, it real money was not in my mind. It was just how doggone difficult it is to have yeah. to confront this gal who's living with her girlfriend. She keeps coming up for communion. I've told her she needs to repent first. And finally, you got to say, nope, you cannot take communion or be a member of this church. I mean, I didn't think about money. I just thought man, this is hard. <laughs> and it can it can make for sleepless nights, which I'm guessing is why a lot of people don't do it, which is bad.
4: Well, and it it is hard, <laughs> too, and especially when we live a little bit more in the passive-aggressive Midwest in particular. For those of us that have pastored in this area, it's hard to be sort of verbally confrontational on any kind of level. And it also brings power dynamics into play, doesn't it, in terms of how do you wield an office of authority as a pastor in an effective way that is calling back uh, for repentance and transformation and not trying to wield power in an inappropriate way. They're just sure. there. I mean, I think you hit it right, Brock. I mean, there's so many complicating factors and because we haven't practiced it. And I remember getting exactly zero courses in seminary yep. about how to do such things as a pastor. And then you're sort of left swinging in the breeze a little bit and don't entirely know what it is to, to do in these situations. It's, it's a tricky thing. And boy, it'd be nice if somebody would have some creative, redemptive, compassionate pathways that holds the truth of the discipline as well,
2: I know a very compassionate pastor who uh take, gets in, into his church, discovers that the president of the congregation's daughter is sacking up with her boyfriend yeah. in, in the house in the door in the house next door to the church, and this guy is a very loving, tender guy did the best job he could, finally leans down when they 're taking communion again after he told them that they couldn't and says, "Have you repented?" and she lied and said yes, and went back to the pew crying and people in the church got so upset nobody should leave the communion table in tears well where's that in the bible you know and so they got mad at the pastor and made his life miserable and he moved on isn't
3: that too bad well we we have kind of violated the scriptures in the sense that we've given pastors way too much visualization or authority in the wrong sense it shouldn't be just the pastor right. that has to do this we need elders to where do are it. the church elders there you A go great time. and in most churches uh-huh. i know that even have elders the elders are are namesakes. They're not really any authority where you need to train and have elders that come up through that congregation who will stand with you. And suddenly if you've got four or five or six people, you know, a leadership standing and saying, we believe this is what the Lord is saying to us, and this is what we believe we have to do. It makes it a lot easier to do it rather than the way I see it done in most churches. I
2: praise God for an elder I had by the name of John. It didn't, for me, it kills me to confront people. It's hard. It didn't bother him a bit. So I would now and then be able to say, John, would you go confront Mr. So-and-so about his drinking problem? Sure, Tom. (laughs) So you need some elders like that so you don't have a nervous breakdown as the only one doing it.
3: and, And one of the things you need is they need to speak with one voice. Yeah. When you have an issue like this, it's not just, well, the pastor's got one opinion, Elder John's got a different opinion, but with one voice, and their voice is not their own. This is where we miss it in Christianity. Well, that's the elders. That's what they want to do. No, 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 no. The elders are there to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. And they've got to be able to back that up biblically. And if you don't like that,
0: then your rebellion is really against the Lord Jesus, not against the elders. All right. Three and a half minutes before break. How would you share with a friend that there is only one God and not multiple ways to be saved? Great question. Thank you, Melissa.
3: I love that question. I do, too. I mean, that's, I that's a it. good question. Here's the reality. You take all the religions of the world. Only Christianity has a Savior who rose from the dead. That's it. The rest of them have philosophies. They have pathways. Some of the great leaders of other religions said they thought they knew the way to yeah. eternity, that type of thing. Jesus himself said there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And when in ministry, when I began to to talk to people and say, I think you need to talk to Jesus about that because this is what Jesus said. And how do you feel about that? And I've had so many people say to me, well, where does he say that in the Bible? And then I could show them. John 14, and, 6. Yeah, and then it takes the burden off of me as somebody saying, oh, you can't believe other things puts the burden where it belongs on their standing with Jesus. And I've seen many of those people, when they really got into the word, praise God, they became strong believers. Well, my, my loving Jesus would never send anyone to
2: hell because all roads lead to heaven. And then you've got to quote the verse to him, depart from me, you it wicked doers, into the eternal fire created for the devil. I mean, yeah, like you wrote a book on this, I think. Do you worship the Jesus of the Bible, who does say he's the only way, or do you worship the Jesus of your own imagination? So. There's a lot of that. Yeah, unfortunately. It,
0: I, I do find when you look at the leaders of world religions, they always seem to point you to God. Christianity is the only uh, faith where the, the leader declares, I am God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a defi- defining point right there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and Along with that, though, Christianity is the mm-hmm. only one. All the religions, they, they point to God or they say, here's what you got to do to get to God. You have to climb these mountains of expectations. Mm-hmm. You have to jump through all these hoops. Christianity is the only religion where God came to you. He pursued you. He came down from his lofty abode and went after you when you were turning the opposite way and you were rebelling against him. And I love Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Wow.
0: Wow. And I love this comment made by a listener. I read a book once. I'm a, about a guy who said he visited the graves of every major religious leader in the world, and only one was empty. <laughs> yeah, checkmate. All right, let me take a little break. When we come back, lots more with uh, Guide Talk. We've got the power panel in place. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin Jepsen, and Peter Kapsner. So when we come back, we'll take your questions, 877-933-2484, or bill at myfaithradio.com. Either one works. Be right back. So glad to have the guys here for Guy Talk. What a great name, Guy Talk. <laughs> Guy what, Talk. what is for dinner, Bill? Um, I haven't decided yet, Tom, but thanks for asking. Well,
2: you've never us that dinner. And that's true.
0: I will bring a pizza some night <laughs> if you'd like. you would like that. Yeah. Well, oh, your face is lit up. A little pay. Yeah. Do you like meat on the pizza? Do you I like, do. Yeah, like pepperoni. pepperoni or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I like pepperoni, mushrooms, mushrooms. Yeah. Garlic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, this is helpful. This is for good. Me. <laughs> Not Sorry, for anyone else. rock pizza. People can send it to me. <laughs> You'll Carol. eat anything,
2: won't you, Tom? Somebody oh. sent us left Do you remember that? That was remember. That was brilliant. It was really good.
0: All right, let me add this into the discussion about church discipline. A listener added this in, which I think is amazing. I'm listening today. My life would have been very different if anyone at my church had disciplined me 30 years ago when I started a relationship with a non believer and then they married us.
3: Mm-mm. Nope.
0: Sad. Very sad. And
2: I, and I said off air, I just recently had a guy ask me to marry him to his unbelieving fiancé, and mm-hmm. I, I had to lovingly, said, Second Corinthians 6.14, says, you don't do that. You mm-hmm. don't be mismated with unbelievers. And, you know, I could have been a, quote, nice guy and said, yeah, sure,
3: I'll do it. Uh-uh, I couldn't sleep if I did that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I've always appreciated, I had a staff member, former missionary, and uh, we worked together for 10 years. After I left that church, and then several years later, I ran into him. He said, hey, I've got, a, I've got a bone to pick with you. I said, you do? What's the problem? He said, I never realized all the times you were disciplining me because you always kept asking me, what do you think Jesus would want you to do? How are you doing this? Is there another way to do it? And he said, yeah, I found some good ideas, and I changed the way I did it. I think when it comes to couples like this, yeah, I, I take them to the Scriptures. There's no question about it. But I usually begin by asking them, well, tell me. You two want to get married, but you really don't meet the biblical criteria. What do you think Jesus would have you do? And I force people to begin to talk about what Jesus would have them do. And suddenly, I've actually had people sit there and say, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But when I tell them it's a bad idea, I'm the bad guy. Mm-hmm. when I force them to talk to Jesus about it, it's another matter altogether. But
2: you can also get, well, you know, I prayed about it, and it feels right. Well, i go after that one, and, too. And people let their feelings override 2 Corinthians 6.
3: And I would say to them, show me in Scripture now, because yep. there will always be a Scriptural backup to what you're saying. Yep.
0: Peter, Justin, either?
4: Well, I just yeah, that, I, uh... What strikes me about the, 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 callers, or the listener's comment, just briefly, is it does speak to... Um, that this is a redemptive thing when we're talking about church discipline. We're not talking about some harsh power play. We're talking about people who are interested in redemption in people's lives. And and when sin is left unchecked, it's just going to wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does, the, it does the leprosy thing that is the manifestation of, of sin physically in the biblical text. It, it begins to disfigure and destroy. So this person saying, my life would have been different 30 years ago. I have a feeling all of us that are on the show and anybody listening could probably look back at times and say, boy, I sure wish a brother or a sister would have intervened oh, yeah. out of that place of compassion, out of that place of love and desire to see us uh, be be in a place of wholeness. So if we perceive discipline through the lens of power, that's a real problem. But if discipline is exercised because it's the place of compassion and love, that's an entirely different conversation. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just with everything that's been said, I, I it, it. it's interesting to hear this comic because it was a— um, doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it was actually a number of years ago. Now, I had a a young woman in our church uh, approach me and asked if I would uh, marry her and her fiancé, whom I met a couple times. And this young woman had volunteered at the church and had gotten to know her quite well, Uh, actually had baptized her. And um, as I got into some of the kind of started the premarital process, at least just getting to know them, um, it came out that they, you know, were living together and um, a and no, number of other different things, and in, had engaged in, you know, premarital sex, but wanted to, to, you know, stay pure from here on out and not, you know, in terms of, you know, being abstinent from that and and save, you know, that for the wedding, you know, and all all, of, all the different things started coming out, and I just I, I had to go through and walk through that. That was for me the first time of recognizing that at the church, I mean, there there wasn't a good system in place. It wasn't something that was talked about. To Peter's point, there wasn't a seminary course on this. Um, but the first thing that I went to was, well, uh, are you guys both professing faith in Jesus? Mm-hmm. And and we spent time just just walking through the gospel, just conversationally and naturally. Um, it certainly brought up, you know, the unnuclear yoked, what that looks like. You know, it's kind of said, hey, it's easy to get married. Anyone can do that but it is it is extremely difficult to have a a lifelong commitment that's marked by love and enduring faithfulness yes um and so and it came down to the fact where they've said well yeah we both profess christ and i said well hey i think that you know in order for you to help for me to help you get the best start possible it's wise for you to have someone needs to move out in order for us to move forward and i said hey look um this isn't, I'm just trying to get this to fit you. have to figure it out on zone. We're here as a church for you. I will help you find a spot. We will find a place for you, because they were just doing it out of convenience, and then out of that convenience, they, you know, succumbed to temptation, and the, unfortunately, um, they they decided to move on, and they said, you know, we're going to find somebody else to marry us, and they did, and I unfortunately don't know what happened to them, but I think that's the that's a difficult, hard reality, but I hope and pray, you know, that that gospel planted a seed, um, and that that had an impact on their lives. And so um, it is hard. It's messy. It's awkward. It's difficult. But um, that's sometimes that's that's what it means to be a minister of the gospel and be able to stand for the truth and, and to do so in a loving and a gracious, mm-hmm. and like Peter is saying, a redemptive way. So,
3: See, thanks. Justin, I hope people really hear that. And why I say that is you're offering them something and not just saying no. That's where the power comes in. Good for you.
0: Thank you, Justin. All right, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So given the passage below, which is often misunderstood and the state we currently find ourselves in, what would this mandate look like in terms of application in various circumstances that would seem contrary to natural human reasoning? Examples, when in the midst of a difficult pandemic, prayers seem to go unanswered, and life feels as though the bottom has dropped out from beneath them. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And I think the answer uh, is somewhat complicated, but let me point this out. I've had the privilege of not only being a pastor here, but traveling overseas and living among people for a period of time that are under persecution. In the West, whether we like it or not, we look for the good things the Lord will do for us. Lord, keep me healthy. Lord, give me the right person to marry. Lord, give me a raise on my job. Over there, they're just surviving day to day because they're under pressure. They can live out those verses of rejoicing even in difficult circumstances, of praising the Lord even when things are going bad, simply because that's their lifestyle. What we run into here is that when it happens, we start thinking, what have I done wrong? Why doesn't the Lord love me? Why isn't this happening? And quite honestly, you think about it from the pulpit, Sunday school, uh, small groups, we rarely talk about these things. Mm-hmm. This is where we need to be talking because I think we're going to be facing some of that in the future of America.
2: I heard a message recently where the pastor said you need to put two verses together and see how, how you work it out. Paul the Apostle saying, rejoice in the Lord Always. Philippians, and the same Apostle Paul saying, Romans chapter 9, I have unceasing grief in my heart because of my Jewish brothers who are not saved. So here's Paul who rejoices always and has unceasing grief in his heart. And I I think the Christian life is kind of complex. Both are possible. Both are true. Rejoicing always doesn't mean that you don't grieve over your lost loved ones. You do both. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to add to that for sure. Other than to, I suppose, suggest that it's, I think it's super understandable that there's really nothing in us that feels like rejoicing when the really difficult things slam into us in life. Uh, the loss of a, of a loved one, a, a super li- difficult diagnosis, maybe a spouse walking out, a kid walking away. These sorts of things are difficult. and And I don't think the invitation to rejoice in the Lord always in that is to put on a happy face and be delighted with the circumstances. I, I think we naturally and should resist that sort of understanding of the verse. But but I think to rejoice in is simply to sort of turn towards, uh, continue to find your source and delight in the Lord and, and not in the circumstances of this world. And maybe even find just a hint of peace that might pass understanding in that delighting where you're just grateful that God is still present, mm-hmm. that that God is actually real, mm-hmm. that God can bring compassion and, uh, and sympathy into the midst of the pain, that God doesn't leave us hanging in the midst of these kinds of things. So if, if delight means like we're cheering on our favorite sports team or something like that, then that's really different than the idea of uh, living in, a, in an unceasing posture of gratefulness that God doesn't leave us hanging at the end of the day, even when life gets really tough.
3: Mm-hmm. I had a Sunday school teacher that really added to that. I thought it was so good. He said, no matter how tough life gets, remember, at the end of the day, Jesus will still have the final word. And I, I, I grabbed onto that, and I began to live that way more and more and more. Doesn't mean I don't grieve. Doesn't mean I don't get mad at things. Doesn't mean I want to throw my hands up. But ultimately, the bottom line is, even in this mess, Jesus will have the final word.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, that's such such a good word, and, and I, yeah, I think this goes back to it's out. There's always a tension of the both and in life and the kingdom. You know, I, I love how Paul says it um, in, in Corinthians when he says that we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing, and both of those can happen. You know, at the same time, I think of Hebrews twelve. You know, of Jesus for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising a shame. And I think that it's, it's that joy, that rejoicing in the Lord that actually helps us press through our circumstances, recognizing that um, not only are they temporary, um, and, but, but also the fact that, um, that Jesus has the last word, but also the fact that God's able to use the difficulty of circumstances and actually work them supernaturally for our good. And there's, there's maybe not any good in it, but God is able to work good from it, um, and, and that we can rejoice. And you know, and I, I love this this passage, Bill. It's you know, I so often you know have students you know um, asking me about that. It's how to discern the will of God, and you know, what do I do? And about this this situation, this situation, you know, I say, I go to this verse all the times. I say, if we can be obedient and faithful in what Scripture clues reveals is the will of God for us, in other words, that where God, where God has a will, He has a way for us to actually obey it because grace always enables what it commands. So if I'm rejoicing always, if I'm praying without ceasing, and I'm giving thanks in all circumstances, I will then be postured before God to have the level of discernment to know what His will might be for who I'm supposed to marry, or what job I'm supposed to take, or where I'm supposed to live, what major to select. And so often when we think of God's will, we think of those specific, you know, um, items of our lives, which are important that God certainly cares about, but the pathway to understanding what those are, is by obeying what God has already clearly revealed in the scriptures.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Fastest Hour on Radio. We're going to take a little break. One more segment with the uh, Power Panel Guide Talk. Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner is the panel. Let us know if you have a question. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Not passing out grades today, but if I were, solid A's and B's. Who gets the A? Uh, I'd say, well, <laughs> I'd say you all get an A. Oh, yeah. Ben, I don't know who would get the B. Probably me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's a question. Any recommendations for what a Christian needs to do when they know what they should do but simply don't want to do it? How much of it is a waiting game on God needing to step in and just the person needing to go to God and take Him at His word, even though they don't understand? Anybody jump in.
1: <laughs> well, if I'm understanding the question right, Bill, um, I mean, I think there's uh, maybe a dynamic behind this. I think sometimes we just we want God to show us what to do before we decide to obey, mm-hmm. when I think sometimes the decision to obey Used to precede God actually clearly showing us what to do. But mm-hmm. if, if I'm if I'm understanding the listener's question right, I mean, I would the first thing that came to my mind if he clearly believes this listener believes that he, he or she knows exactly what God's calling to, calling them to do, but doesn't know if they should do it and move forward with it. Um, you know, are who else are you involving in that discerning process, and who else have you maybe told or Kind of bounce this off of that can help support you, can help encourage you, can help pray for you, or maybe mm. even do it with you, depending on what it is. So I would say maybe, yeah, bring it outside of yourself and bring others, invite a few close, trusted friends into it. Um, and I think that might be what potentially could hold you back depending on the circumstance. But I would need to know more in order to say more specifically.
2: Justin, that's what I was going to say. And wouldn't it be <laughs> great if everybody listening to this show, male or female, had a prayer partner where once a week you either get together face to face or you have a phone call and you hold each other accountable. And you know, I bet I have this problem. I know I think the Lord wants me to do this, but I'm not sure when and how. Okay, let's pray about it. And then we'll check in next Monday. How'd you do? Did you do anything? You know, having people check in on you is really good for getting you off their, you know, off your uh, <laughs> whatever.
0: <laughs> so Isn't it, it's interesting when you reach out to somebody and maybe it's kind of this thought crosses your mind that, you know, I should I should text Tom Brock or Tom Parrish, and I reach out, and the response almost 95% of the time is, wow, was this amazing timing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. It's oh, yeah. crazy yeah.
0: Uh, how much they needed to hear from mm-hmm. you at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many times that's happened, and
3: I'm always amazed. <laughs> I really am, because you get this little prompting, and for some reason you email them, or you call them, yep. or it and they'll say, you know, I needed to hear that today. hmm
4: Here's a See, question Bill you, you that yeah that's you're working on about a 30% success rate with me Bill. That's good. <laughs> that's a good point. No, it's all right. I I you know those places of faith, right? I just and again I'm with Justin if if we if we understand the listener's question rightly, I think it it's just so hard to take those steps of trust into the unknown, to take those I suppose those leaps of faith, but just the heart of our faith is when you you hear that still small voice and and if somebody Alongside of you, and that's where I agree. We we pray with other people on these things. That when that voice is saying yes, you may not uh, have a a pros and cons list that's in your favor related to that decision, and and you may not entirely know what the outcome of that decision is going to be. But but to just sort of say, okay, I'm going to close my eyes and step into this deal. I I don't know of a different way to do it. But to your point, when we when when we allow ourselves to be obedient as God invites us to, to text somebody else or call somebody else, you're right. I can't tell you the number of times where. Somebody said that is exactly what we need and or exactly what I need. Mm-hmm. Hardly ever does somebody say, Huh? <laughs> why why are you texting me right now? I, I can't think of the times <laughs> where that's happened right. uh, in, in the situation. Yeah, so I'll, I oh go
3: ahead, Tom I want to add something to this. I can't speak for the listener because I really don't know your circumstances, but this has brought something up in me. Most of the time when I feel the Lord prompting me to do something, but I don't want to do it. There's no mystery for me at least why I don't want to do it. Because the Lord's asking me to do something that's contrary to my nature. Mm -hmm. Forgive someone. Go see someone. Go help someone. Give somebody some money, whatever that may be. And (laughs) well, well, wait a minute, I've been putting that money away for an electric bike. You know, if I give them the money, I won't get my bike. So the problem most of the time, it's not a mystery for me anyway, when I run into this. The mystery is how resistant I can be because I don't want to listen to the Lord. And then I have to do a lot of repenting. And that's why I have a good wife who tells me, Tom, go repent now. And I do.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I do find the first part of the question interesting because the question starts with any recommendations for what a Christian needs to do when they know what they should do but simply don't want to do it. I wonder, what is this person being told what they need to do? You know, as a Christian, maybe the Lord is nudging you to spend uh, more time in the Word, maybe the Lord is saying, I'd like you to memorize some of my words so it's stored in your heart. Agreed. And you go, I should be memorizing Scripture, but I don't want to do it. I know I should, but I don't want to. So maybe it's spiritual disciplines that they're dealing with. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. So far, so good. Some nice um, questions coming in. This one is interesting. My family, who say they're Christians, is deciding to gather at Easter, even though we would exceed the number of people allowed to gather According to local restrictions, how do I respond that we can't be there because of breaking the COVID laws?
2: Well, I commend him for caring about following Romans 13. that says, obey the government. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, my question is, is the government still forbidding more than eight people to gather on Easter? I don't know if that's true. I think if, there's an announcement tomorrow that's coming out as well. Okay. So, yeah. I, I'd hope, hopefully, it's not going to be an issue. But if it is... At least this guy's asking the right question. So many people don't, I mean, I, 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 if I, if I, if it says 55 miles an hour and I'm going 60, I feel guilt because, you know, Romans 13 says, obey the government. So at least this guy's on the, on the right path, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. The listener chimed in with, in regard to the previous conversation, I heard an interesting quote by Elizabeth Elliott, struggling is delayed obedience. Mm. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) good word she she would know a lot about that right (laughs) she would yep all right questions are still coming in here um can the warning of hebrews six four through six be illustrated by balaam and judas iscariot anybody got hebrews six out hebrews six four through six Tommy, you don't have that memorized
2: uh hebrews six about falling away is that the one hebrews six you want me to read it yes please Hebrews I don't, six I, I don't like this version, by the way, so I'll just read it anyway. Re- Romans, uh, Hebrews 6, 4-3, is impossible to bring to repentance those who have were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. Ugh, that's
0: hard. Well, we've dealt with this before. Maybe not on this show, but I have with another theologian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't want to do all the one... I don't well, want to be what, the one What did he say? What did he say? Like, I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was hoping. You know, so, so what's his question? But the question is, can the warning of Hebrews 6 be illustrated by Balaam and Judas Iscariot? Yeah. Or, or Saul? Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember that, that the theologian I spoke to was in regards to tasting. doesn't mean you are right. uh, fully knowing That's Jesus. That's the Calvinist response. Yes. Yep. Yeah. They
2: weren't really saved to begin with, is what a Calvinist would say. Mm -hmm. A Lutheran would say, yeah, they were, and they actually left the Lord. Now, I'm more on the Calvinist side, even though I'm a Lutheran. (laughs) I'm more on the Lutheran
0: side. There you go. You guys on uh, the studio line want to jump in, or should we move on?
4: You haven't had much to add on that one, Justin.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm trying to rack my brain a little bit. Um, That certainly is a really difficult question. I I mean, I, I think there's certainly biblical... Uh, I would say biblical characters people we see in the Bible that yeah, I think that I think Judas would perhaps be a good example um of that, but at the same time i, I don 't think we could say that Judas had reached a place that he was beyond repentance and couldn 't be restored back I, I i often wonder, I think he did I, when he contrast with how Peter responded in his remorse and denying Christ and how Judas responded. Um, and his forsaking Christ, but yet the rate the reality is all, everyone fled, and Jesus told them that that was going to be the case. So I, I don't know if exactly, you know, to sp- answer the specific question of the listener, not necessarily to explain all the theological nuances of the text in Hebrews 6, I don't know if we could say with absolute clarity or certainty that Judas was beyond the point of restoration. You know, it's interesting when we talk
3: about this because we we focus on a point in a time when you receive Jesus, you know, what you're doing. One of the things I think about after all these years of marriage, I can't just simply say I was married, you know, 40-some years ago. Each and every day is a new day of renewal to my wife, and I would urge Christians out there, regardless of, of what you did or when you came to Christ, every single day you need to get up and say, today is the day of salvation, Today is the day I will honor Jesus. Today is the day I will serve him and him only. Think about that. If We do that every day until the day we die. These questions don't mean anything to us any longer. What they mean something is when we have family members, you know, drifting away. And that's where we need to encourage them, renew
0: yourself to the Lord Jesus. All right. We just uh, have about a minute and a half left. Anybody have a point you want to bring up or a thought you want to leave us with or... I don't know if I can get into another question. I still have several more, but you know that the way that is with a minute and a half to go. Let's talk about double predestination versus free will. Yeah, that's
3: <laughs> um, I knew
0: I knew you'd be helpful once again. <laughs> there is an enlightenment.
1: Is that, is that is my question.
0: W- what's it? for what?
1: Monday Thursday? Are we meet are we as guy talk commencing next Thursday even though it's Monday Thursday?
2: Yes, it is. Do You know We're what, you know what Monday it? means? Good. Service. It's Latin for mandatum, which okay. means commandment. When Jesus gave the last supper, he gave us a new commandment to love one another.
0: Let me ask there you guys, go. seeing as I have you right now, are you guys going to be available next Thursday yes. for Guy Talk? Yes, I think I would.
3: Yes. Yeah. All right. I believe so. There's a spiritual awakening bill that's going on in this country. I got a call from my, my nephew today, and he had grown up in the church, drifted away, all that kind of stuff. And he said, Uncle Tom, I got to tell you, I'm becoming. I'm I'm running into Jesus everywhere. Something's going on. I can't explain what's going on. And he said, "So are the rest of my family. My brother just called me and wants to move to Florida and start a church and work down there. And he's never talked like that before. So there's something going on Mm -hmm. with the Holy Spirit. And I want people to rejoice in that and be happy about it because,
0: as bleak as it looks, it's not bleak for the Lord. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. So nice to be with you. Thank you. As always, I say that sincerely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Guy Talk, that is all for now. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Josh Mulvihill will be with me for the full hour. I'm looking forward to connecting again with Josh, talking to him. Thank you so much for your great questions. I didn't get to all of them, and I apologize. I'm going to put them in storage for next Thursday, and we'll try to get to them then. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in about three minutes.